Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. So what I wanted to do today is introduce a little something that I I did it in our Zoom classes this week, uh, Monday and Tuesday. We covered this material on the two olive trees and the prophet Zechariah, uh, because it has to do with our uh, Song of Songs study and the footsteps of Messiah and how, you know, pretty much the entire, well, I guess we haven't run across anything in the Song of Songs yet that hasn't been prophecy of the exile and return of Israel. And so in that sense, it's, it's been an unexpected treasure. If you've only read the Song of Songs, it's just a beautiful love story between, you know, Messiah and the bride, that it's much more active than that. There's a lot more going on beneath the layers, and it has to do with describing our exile, which is very important. And knowing that we're in exile and knowing that we're going to have challenges that are unique to this generation, and that's that's the big thing. Maybe this is one of the things that I focused on this week, and in fact, I think in the, the first class, on the Monday night class, we're 45 minutes instead of really getting deep into the word. It was just um, a matter of trying to encourage and say, yes, we live in a unique unique time. There hasn't been anything like this for pretty much the past 2,000 years. We do feel isolated. We do feel very different. It can be very lonely. It can be very messy, extremely messy. And that was the, the, the beauty, I think, of the text. And I think it worked very well with our text where we're looking at the two olive trees of Zechariah because that was also a messy time in Israel. It was a time of return from the exile, from Babylon. And we know that there will be two returns from exile in Babylon. That's the gist of the prophecy is that you will come back from Babylon twice. And should we doubt that, we say, well, I don't, I don't see a place called Babylon today. Of course not, because it's everywhere. It's it's in all those organizations that we talked about that the Romans picked up, improved upon, expanded the Greek organizational systems that are designed to control large numbers of people, either by means of seduction, giving you something you want, coercion, giving you something or else, or actually killing you if you don't comply in the end. The the end result of those systems is not good if you don't comply and assimilate. And that's the whole goal is to assimilate you to where you lose your identity in exile. We don't want to do that. We don't want to lose our identity in exile. And so the Song of Songs has been a huge encouragement to us that, yes, we can feel very alone. We can feel very much a part of a big mess. And if the spirit that drew us out were not so powerful, I don't know that we could withstand that feeling of being so different and lonely and set apart and and so forth. Because sometimes set apart doesn't make you feel holy. Sometimes being set apart makes you feel lonely. And so we don't have to feel lonely, even though we probably will, because we're not alone. There was a great song several years ago, and I forget the name of the artist. I want to say his first name was Jason something. One of you younger people would know who I'm talking about. And he sang a song called Never Alone Martin. And it's an awesome song to listen to. You're never alone. You know, even in those moments when you're you're by yourself, you wonder if you're doing the right thing for your family. You wonder if you're doing the right, the right thing for your people. The father will come in. He'll say, you're never alone. 
I'll always be with you. And that was the promise in scripture. It's not like we don't know that with our head. We've read that how many times with our head? I'll always be with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. It doesn't mean that the soul inside of us won't feel alone, that the soul inside of us won't doubt the spirit of truth that says you're not alone. But the soul, the animal soul inside is going to feel lonely and alone. And you know, wounding, rejection, particularly this time of year, we do feel a little bit pushed out and, and that's okay. That's by our choice. We chose this path so we can't be offended when we do feel isolated at that this particular season, but that's okay. If, if you're moving with what the spirit is doing in your generation, there's no reason to feel alone. Doesn't mean we won't feel alone, but we really don't have a reason to because we have a goal in mind. We have a place we're walking to. Whereas those that we might envy a little bit because they don't look like they're alone, they're going to their parties, their family gatherings and all that, they don't know where they're going. They might know where they are at the moment, but in the big scheme of things, in the eternal scheme of things, they really don't know where they're going. We have assurance. We know where we're going. So I wanted to encourage them a little bit this week. And that was my little mini encouragement for you. I don't probably didn't sound that encouraging, but it it meant, you know, on the scale of one to 10 with Halisa, that was probably really high. So just kind of ruminate on that. But what I want to do is go to the newsletter because something happened yesterday. The teaching that we we went into with the two olive trees of Zechariah, uh, it had very specific language in it, and it wasn't timed out anything. This just happened to be the week when we got to that particular prophecy. And this happened to be the week when looking at that particular prophecy, because it's it's referring, it's connected to a passage in Song of Songs chapter four, because it's all about the return from the exile, that we broke down some particular words about the return and the exile. And we looked at those words in class, had a PowerPoint, like, oh, okay, play on words here. This is referring to return from the exile, both the first exile from Babylon, and then the one in the end times. Because at the end, John, John in his revelation says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And when you see a double in scripture, and especially as it refers to prophecy, often in this context, you're, you're supposed to process this happened at one particular time in history, and then it'll happen again in history. And so John, as he's looking backward, whereas Zechariah is looking forward, Ezekiel's looking forward, and so Zechariah sees the return from the first exile and prophesies concerning it, but then he also prophesies forward. John, looking backward, he's he's kind of in the same predicament, but on the other end of the spectrum, whereas Zechariah sees, yes, this was the end of the first Babylonian exile, but I'm seeing something off in the future, that there would be another Babylonian. There's a second olive tree here, that there would be another return of Israel from Babylon. John's looking backward and saying, okay, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. He looks back, he says, yeah, there was a return from Babylon, but now I see forward again, kind of in uh, Zechariah's predicament, where that first return from exile now is ancient history, literally ancient history. And But he's saying, there's another one I see. I saw it in the past, it fell, and it's already fallen. The fall in the past somehow set the stage that it's going to fall in the future. And of course, we know that the high priest Yehoshua and Zerubbabel, the governors of Zerubbabel, that's a mouthful, they were part of that return and rebuilding from Babylon the first time. And therefore, we have them as prophetic prototypes of Messiah 
and the future return from Babylon, which is the people of Israel, those joined with the people of Israel, returning from exile all over the world back to the land. And they will do it through the agency of somebody who came in human form, just like Yehoshua, the high priest Yehoshua, and Zerubbabel. And you put those two together, of course, Yehoshua, Yeshua is the short form of Yehoshua, just like um, Elisha is the short form of Elishua, you know, Elijah's sidekick. Okay. Sometimes in Hebrew, they'll shorten a name. And that's what happens with Yeshua, salvation. It's a shortened form of Yehoshua, which is salvation. And then there's a Rubabel, who's going to be the, the governor, like taking care of the civil, secular aspects of the return. And so we're told that the government, in, in terms of the Messiah, the government will be on his shoulders. So he will have a civil governmental role, but he will also have the role of a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, don't get too carried away by that, all right? Don't, don't get off into a bunch of literature about Melchizedek. It's really simple when you want to understand about Melchizedek. He's a king of righteousness. He's part of a royal priesthood. There's two important priesthoods in the Torah. There's the Levitical priesthood, of which Yeshua is not. These are the Kohanim, the high priest and the priests. They serve the 12 tribes of Israel. But the 12 tribes of Israel are a royal priesthood, and they in turn serve as priests to the nations. See, there's two kinds, and it's that simple. There's there's no sense in getting off into the mystery of it. It's not that big a mystery. It's just a, a matter of saying, can you learn about this type of priesthood from looking at that type of priesthood? Of course you can. They're both priesthoods. And in that sense, they're both royal. But understanding our role, if we are not a Kohen, if we are not a priest, then I'm not going to say the job becomes much more interesting. But in terms of the freedom of movement and the freedom to minister, because the Kohanim, those who are Kohanim by blood from the tribe of Levi, their service is limited, you know, to this, this one spot. And they're ministering to the tribes. But in terms of the tribes, there's um, it's a wider scope, basically, right? So having cleared that up, as we were looking at this prophecy, it was fun. It was good. It was edifying. It was inspiring. It was comforting. Yes, there, there is. Babylon will fall in the future. And it even told us how to come out. It's very simple. I mean, you, like, you don't have to be well-versed in conspiracy theories. You don't have to know exactly who the beast is. You don't have to know who the Antichrist is. You don't really even have to know any of those things. Scripture doesn't tell you that's how to prepare. It tells you they will be there, but your gathering, your resurrection is not dependent upon your being able to point to a particular person or organization and say, that's the beast, that's the Antichrist. And that's good news because how many people have been wrong about that through the ages? I mean, like wrong, 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 wrong. Up to this point, they've all been wrong because it's going to be very unique. It's going to be a small window of time that it fits in. We can get fuzzy pictures out of the prophets, but the importance of keeping it fuzzy is because there's really only one thing we're told. Do not share in her sins. That's all you have to do to prepare. I mean, to be truly prepared because you might be wrong if you think it's this person. You might be wrong if you think it's that organization. How many books have been written about a particular religious organization being the Antichrist? Well, there's no doubt that religion has always factored into that. It's been used because it's an organization to control people. It doesn't mean everyone who's ever participated in that system 
is the Antichrist or part of the Antichrist or consciously participating with the Antichrist. It doesn't mean that. We're told we're going to have to live within Babylon. Sorry, you're there. Unless you're living in the land of Israel, you're there. You're in Babylon. You only have to know one thing. In a nutshell, it says, don't partake of her sins. How can you not partake of her sins? First, you have to know what sin is and stop it. You have to know what the right thing to do is, according to the word, and start doing it. And therefore, that evokes a reverence for Adonai. That's what he's looking for. And so if you're a believer in Yeshua, that message becomes all the more important because Yeshua is like the big picture thing in the book of Revelation. Like, he's, I'm coming back. I'm serious about that. And I was always serious about sin. Go and sin no more, right? And so we can't use Yeshua as an excuse to go on sinning, God forbid. And so he says, yes, you're going to be in Babylon. That's where I'm going to find you. That's where I'm going to gather you from. Nevertheless, how can you prepare? It's going to be messy. Make no mistake, it will be messy. But how do we prepare? We quit sin. Don't partake in our sins because it says they piled up to heaven. Once the last sin hits the top of the pile, that it touches a particular place in heaven. And I would love to, maybe I wouldn't love to visualize that. That'd be a lot of sin to look at. Okay, maybe not. But maybe just that last one. Like, what happens? Like, well, you read the book of Revelation and a bunch of stuff starts happening. A bunch of judgment starts happening. So we're just waiting for the last person to put the last sin at the top of the pile. We just don't want it to be us. He says, come out of that. Don't do that. So as I was reading a newsletter from a Hebrew language program that I've been enrolled in for years, that's how I keep up my conversational Hebrew. In their newsletter on the Torah portion this week, would you believe their, their word presentation was identical? to what we did in class. I mean, it's completely random. I had no idea. You, you don't really know until that newsletter shows up in your, your inbox on Friday what Hebrew lesson that they will send at the end of the week. And all of a sudden, it's like, I'm looking at my PowerPoint slides almost. Um, I would love to say great minds think alike, but I can't tra- take credit for that. I really can't. And so I don't know if it's a coincidence. I don't know if it's a coinky-dink, as we say down here. Um, or if it's just one of those divine kisses from heaven. But I'm going to assume that's a divine kiss from heaven. That there's something this week that we need to understand about the return from the exile that's going to encourage us to keep standing firm until Yeshua comes. So I want to just go over that newsletter with you today. And of course, our text has been chapter four of the Song of Songs, which is about returning from the nations, returning um, from the Mount of Amana, from the, the mountain of faith, like our father Abraham. And so this uh, particular section is very consistent with that. And so this prophecy is coming from, if you want to follow along in your Bible, it's coming from Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 3, but I would suggest absolutely reading the chapters around it because context is very important. I want you to see that. I want you to be able to visualize Yehoshua with the filthy garments standing there. I want you to be able to be able to visualize the eyes that represent the seven spirits on that lampstand. I want you to understand more about Zerubbabel so that you can see in Yeshua the the roles of royal high priest 
as well as the, the civil government being carried on his shoulders and how he represents, um, how these two men are representing uh, a return that's very messy, but how we can look forward to the return of Messiah, who will take our mess and turn us into pure gold. Right. So, yes, please do read more than this. But I'm just going to read Zechariah chapter four, verses one through three. It says, then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. There again, if you're keeping a journal of prophecy, words or phrases in context, not 100 percent of the time, but in context, often when someone is awakened from sleep, it can mean um, a resurrection from the dead. And so that right there was a little word clue that Zechariah isn't just seeing something in his time period. He's seeing even beyond that to the resurrection. He said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also, and this is important, two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl, and the other is on its left side. Right. So if you know anything about the menorah, you know that um, those seven branches stand for more than one thing. They can represent the seven days of creation. They can represent the seven spirits of Adonai listed in Isaiah. They can represent the seven feasts. They can represent Israel participating in its seven feasts with the power of the Holy Spirit, which is described as seven spirits in Isaiah. And so you say, well, which one of those things does it represent? Yes, yes. It's, you know, there's <laughs> prophecy is not so simple. It's it's very rich and deep and wide and, and high. Um, you'll probably will go through eternity and never search out the depths of prophecy. But again, th this is the seven branch menorah. And in this case, he sees it all of gold. It's a golden menorah. There's um it's a pure gold. It's a refined gold. Remember, um, you can read about the process of how they made it in the Torah, but it, yes, it was a highly refined gold. And there's, uh, instead of being sourced, their oil being sourced by just one tree, and remember, a tree can represent a person in Scripture. Trees of righteousness, right? Uh, uh, you can be like a tree planted by the rivers of living water. Uh, you can be like a tree planted in the house of Adonai. Okay, so there's another one for your prophecy journal or diary. If you're keeping one, a tree can be a person. And in this case, there's two olive trees. And because they're olive trees, it makes you think of Messiah. Because remember, Messiah or Mashiach, He's the one who's covered or smeared with oil. And where do you source oil? An olive tree. So an olive tree can be a picture, at least in this context, of the Messiah, a sent one. 
So we have sent ones. We have Yehoshua and Zerubbabel in the time that Zechariah is seeing this particular vision. And yet they are prototypes, because there's two of them, they're prototypes as to someone in the future. So not only can it represent the two people, Zerubbabel and Yehoshua, prophesying of a person, of a Mashiach, who will have both of these qualities. It can also represent, because it's two, two time periods. When you see something doubled, it can refer to two time periods. And look, guys, there's all sorts of interpretations of this particular prophecy, and I'm not arguing with any of them. I probably don't even know how many there are. There's all kinds of, of ways and, and uh, of interpretation of the significance that people see in it. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm saying what we see here is a significant significance based on literally thousands of years of study from the Jewish sages. They see something here that really shines to us because we feel like we have neared the end of the exile. And that's how they're interpreting this. They're saying that one way of looking at this menorah and the two olive trees has to do with the end of the exile, of which we are part of. We're part of the second exile right now. So we want to look at this through ancient eyes. We want to apply good rules of interpretation. And that's important. When you're reading the prophets, we have to understand first, Moses, the first five books of the Bible, are the prophecy. That's the prophecy. Everything in the prophets arises out of or points back to the prophecy, the first five books. The old saying, remember, is Moses is the prophet and the prophets are his legs. That's a great way of remembering the relationship between the two. And this is why it was so you know, um, important when some of the people started looking at Yeshua and saying, surely this is the prophet. That's what they meant. Like, is this the prophet like Moses? Is this someone who can teach the Torah like Moses? Because Moses is the prophecy that the prophets are talking about when they talk about its fulfillment. Is Yeshua this agent like Moses? So uh, when we look at the prophets, and there's another section called the writings, uh, sometimes I think in the Gospels they'll call it the Psalms, but these would be uh, like the Megillot. It, it would be um, maybe some historical books, things like Esther, other things. You know, that is that's even though there is prophecy in Esther too, uh, but there's another section called the Writings, and yes, there's prophecy in the Psalms too, but they're just they're considered a separate section. And so the thing to know about the prophets is they would have either prophesied prior to Jerusalem's fall to Babylon and the exile, or they would have prophesied after Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. And I say this because there's a, there's a contrast between how Judah left the land 
Now, remember, by this time, the northern tribes have already been conquered by Assyria and dispersed or replaced or intermarried with people that were brought in to try to disrupt the social system, uh, to keep them under control. So the northern tribes have pretty much lost their identity, or if they joined themselves to Judah, uh, by the time they come back from Babylon, they're all called Jews, even if they do know their tribe. That something happened in that 70 years, they're all called Jews by that time. And uh, Ezekiel is prophesying about when Babylon will conquer Judah. He's prophesying before the return. Now, does he prophesy about things far into the millennial reign? Yes, he does. But that's kind of our point here. When a prophet prophesies, Typically, his prophecy will address something happening in his lifetime or very soon to follow. And that prophecy will have some application probably far in the future, just like Ezekiel. He's telling the people they're going to fall to Babylon because of their sins, because of the failures of the priesthood, that the temple's not functioning the way that it was supposed to function. People aren't being taught the difference between clean and unclean. They're being encouraged to sin. And so, he, yes, he's prophesying about his own time period where Israel, or especially Judah at this point, had fallen into extreme apostasy. But he's also prophesying about the millennial reign. So knowing when the prophet lived is often critical to saying, what's the full context right here? Is he prophesying about his immediate lifetime, or should I look into the future, even as far as the Messianic kingdom? And very often the answer is yes, that there will be dual purpose. Sometimes they'll be separated out. And so that generation of Ezekiel, the one that had fallen into apostasy, that was about to be deported to Babylon for 70 years of exile, he calls that generation Copper, tin, and dross. Copper, tin, and dross. Now, copper, tin, and dross, there's none of that in the menorah. None of that in the golden menorah. Copper, tin, and dross are not a big deal. Um, not something that you would find in the holy place. Copper, you could find in the outer court. Tin and dross, you shouldn't be finding anywhere. That would definitely be not just outside the court. It would be out in the tribal encampments, but definitely not in the realm of holiness. So in contrast with what Ezekiel is saying about Judah at that time, that they're copper, tin, and dross, we see Zechariah prophesying after the exile in Babylon. And in this case, he's describing Judah, and we'll say Israel too, because Judah is part of Israel. Now, he says this lampstand is pure gold. It's no longer copper, tin, and dross. Israel is no longer copper, tin, and dross. They're in a process of refinement. And so the Midrash Rabbata, the Song of Songs, chapter 4, tries to draw the relationship between that prophecy of the menorah and the two olive trees to the messianic era. And here's what it says. It says the verse is plain meaning. 
refers to the second temple. However, remember, this is the time when they're, they're coming back. They're trying to rebuild after the Babylonian exile. They say what Zechariah sees applies to his lifetime, to the rebuilding of the second temple. However, the Midrash takes it to be metaphorically describing Israel in the messianic era that it's contrasting Ezekiel 22:18 that referred to Israel as copper tin and dross nevertheless when they return from the exile Zechariah sees them as pure gold a pure golden lampstand and that in the messianic era and that's why I think it's important for you to read the whole context so you you can see Yehoshua in the filthy garments and him being washed in in clean linen garments put back in the place of those, showing how much uncleanness they had picked up in their exile in Babylon. Not that they weren't already that way. Not that they weren't already tin, copper, and dross when they went to Babylon. Babylon wasn't a great place for them, but it did bring them to a place of repentance and a desire to return. So Yehoshua was reclothed in these clean garments, symbolizing that Israel and its priesthood is in a process of purification. Now, are they pure yet? No. But just like our father Abraham, remember the the faith credits that we talked about? Before he learned anything, he just agreed to get out of Ur. Just let's get out of this place of idolatry. Same thing with the, the Jews returning from Babylon. They just said, let us get out of this place of idolatry, even though a lot of that junk was stuck to them. And so because of that good intent, remember, you get righteousness credits to walk in because of the faithfulness. So in the same way that Balaam saw Israel without a blemish when they were camped in the wilderness, he saw them without a blemish when clearly they had some. So in Zechariah's return, he's seeing Judah return also as a step toward its ultimate purification in the messianic kingdom. Were they just eat up with sin when they came back? They were. Were they messy? You bet. But just like Bilam saw them perfect, now Zechariah sees them as perfect because he sees them as being purified, pure gold at the time of King Messiah, at the time of the second olive tree. He was seeing them not as they were, but as they would be. Right? That ultimately, like the other prophets, like Jeremiah, And Ezekiel talked about there would be an ultimate circumcision of the heart, not just a circumcision of the body, but a full circumcision of the heart at that time. And it was messy. I know that that's a problem today in this repentance coming to ourselves in all the places of exile. It's kind of a messy return. And sometimes people even look at the modern state of Israel and and they complain because it was like it's just a political, secular nation. Well, my goodness, weren't politics involved in the return of Judah from Babylon the first time? If we look at what Ezra and Nehemiah went through, how long it had been since the people had, as a people, even listened to the Torah to know what sin was. They were up to their eyeballs and messy when the Jews returned from the Babylonian exile. And you remember the stories. You've you've read these books. You know that the the Jews were married to idolatrous spouses, and they had to go through painful divorces. You know, just looking at the reality today, there's so many painful divorces, and often you can look and see, yeah, 
there, there was one of the spouses that simply was not ready to leave Babylon. And it's like the Holy Spirit got in there and said, just like the men were told, you've married these idolatrous wives, you're going to, and you've had children with them, you're going to have to divorce them. We're seeing that happen today. There's a lot of political intrigue that went on during that period when Jerusalem and the temple were rebuilt. Absolutely, right and left political intrigue. We saw a lot of accusations. We saw a lot of uh, gossip, tattletaling stirred up by the Arabs. I mean, literally by the Arabs. Um, they were sending word trying to undercut the Jews as they rebuilt Jerusalem and the temple. They would make up stories about them. They had all sorts of, there were terror attacks by Arabs while the Jews were restoring Jerusalem's walls. This is nothing new. On the part of Judah, we saw a lot of selfish individualism. We saw people all wrapped up in their own stuff. They, they were repairing their own houses, but there wasn't much willingness to work together to rebuild the temple for gathering. And that, that was a mess. He's like, how are you, you know, living in your nice, comfortable houses, and you've not even looked at repairing the house for Adonai? We know that they were blatantly breaking Shabbat and blatantly breaking the feast, the appointed times. In fact, they were so blatantly breaking the Shabbat that Nehemiah had to run the merchants out of Jerusalem. He had to lock the gates on Friday evening and set guards on the gates to keep the merchants from bringing the goods back in on the Shabbat. And they would not bring the goods in on Shabbat if people weren't buying it. We know that they had not been keeping the feasts as they should have been. So definitely, Zechariah, seeing them as pure gold, is a little optimistic based on conditions on the ground. Let's just call that conditions on the ground, right? There's nothing going on today that didn't go on then. There's a lot of posturing. But in the middle of that posturing, there's a lot of righteous people trying to do the right thing, trying to influence for good, because they believe, ultimately, this big mess of copper, tin, and dross is going to turn into solid gold. It's going to bear fruit. Remember the, the flowers that were uh, formed into the menorah itself? It's going to be fruitful no matter what it looks like today, no matter what big a mess it is today. It will be fruitful if I simply will not allow myself to be discouraged. Uh, another place in the Midrash, it says, um, Zechariah the prophet said, I saw all of the house of Israel as pure gold. All. And behold, there is a menorah made entirely of gold with its bowl on its head. And that Hebrew expression there for the bowl on its head is begula al-rosha. That's going to make a difference here in a minute. There are two olive trees over it. Zechariah's prophecy is directed at Zerubbabel, who lived in the time of the second temple and not in messianic time. The Midrash takes Zerubbabel in verse 6 to be a prophecy of King Messiah, whose progenitor it says he was. Now, was he literally the ancestor of Yeshua? Possible, right? Uh, without getting into endless genealogies. But we also have to remember that substituting an ancestor's name for a descendant is pretty common in scripture, just as my servant David sometimes stands for King Messiah, Yeshua, the offspring of David. And it can also be used to describe how a divinely gifted spirit of a particular individual 
might appear again in a later generation, like John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. I didn't mean he was Elijah. He came with that same spirit of zeal, like Elijah, like Pinchas. And so it's drawing the conclusion the rabbis are telling us, if, if you can understand Zerubbabel, then you can understand something about the future coming of King Messiah. And so they take it back again to these two olive trees. And the reason that they're seeing this as two separate time periods, the two exiles, is because they're seeing a process of being sent into exile and coming back with the language in Hebrew that where it says a bowl on its head. Remember the bowl of oil? And that expression is gula arosha. Gula arosha in Hebrew. Now, rosh is a head. Gula can be a bowl. Bowl on head. <laughs> bowl on its head. But that word is very close to another Hebrew word. And gula is like gola, which is an exile. One said the word is to be expounded as it's written. Gola, which means its redeemer. So is it a bowl of oil? Is it an exile? Or is it a redeemer on their heads? Well, maybe again, we're talking about prophecy. It's highly likely the answer is, you said it, yes. It says, you know, it goes on and it explains in the Midrash, it says, the one who said exile was referring to the fact that when Israel went into exile in Babylonia, the divine presence went with them. He didn't leave them or forsake them. And according to the one who said it's Goel, meaning it's Redeemer, for it is written, Isaiah 47, 4, our Redeemer, whose name is yod heh Master of Legions. And so they're saying, yes. What, what are these two olive trees? What is this bowl? They're saying this is a teaching application. Israel went into exile, and Adonai was the bowl on their heads, the bowl full of oil. There was his presence represented by the oil. And so they had him still on their heads. They still had the anointing of the Ruach HaKodesh to watch over them in their exile. So he went with them into exile. And then in the second explanation, he redeemed them from exile. And they say, this is why Zechariah saw two olive trees. And so they say the redemption from Babylon would occur in two separate time periods. It would happen in Zechariah's generation and again in the future return from Babylon, as we know John prophesied. And that's how they're connecting it with our chapter four in the Song of Songs, where it says, you are entirely fair, my beloved. There's no blemish in you. You're pure gold. And remember the seven lamps before the throne? They were pure gold in the book of Revelation. And it says these are the seven churches. Church is not a great translation. These are seven assemblies. And what do they represent? The seven feasts of Adonai. And Israel, the people of Adonai, who assemble at those seven feast times. So the spirit, the oil, is in Israel. Israel assembles at these seven appointed times, and the spirit works through Israel to refine them at these seven appointed times. You say, what use is the feast today? What does it have to do with anything today? Each of these feasts are designed to purify you in some way in regard to your salvation, your redemption, 
your freedom, your service, your obedience, daily resurrection, atonements, holiness, how you dwell from day to day. Each of them is something that you go through in order to purify you, to, to bring you to that place of that pure lamp burning before the throne in Revelation. And so it says, although the Midrash says the word gula refers to Babylonian exile, it means to include as well the current one that we're in. It interprets the Zechariah verse where this word appears to be speaking of the Messianic era, which will follow the current exile. When this exile is over, we go right into the Messianic era. Although the Isaiah passage speaks of redemption from the Babylonian exile, it serves to teach about the future redemption as well, becoming pure gold in Messianic times. So that was our teaching. That's it's not everything, but it's it's the gist of the teaching that we had this week. It's very specific information about the return of the exiles from Babylon, their place of exile, into the Messianic kingdom with King Yeshua, who is also a royal high priest. It explains John's prophecy, Babylon the Great is Fallen, Fallen, referring to both of those time periods, the fall of historical Babylon and this future fall that will release us from our captivity. And, you know, it, it encourages us, again, come out of her. Well, you can't come out of the world, but you can come out of her sin. Easy, right? <laughs> so just as that first return was very messy, so this one, as we look around, we're like, okay, this is this return, we can see it's begun. He started to wake up people in regard to their need to repent and quit sinning. He's trying to clean them up. Remember the high priest, Yehoshua, in the filthy garments? They, they need to renew their devotion to Adonai, even though they're a mess, even though we're a mess. Nevertheless, Zechariah saw us as pure gold, that same pure gold lampstand that was before the throne in Revelation 1, 4, and uh, also verse 20. Gathered through the seven sacred convocation, he has restored the seven appointed times to his people all in the world, all in the Babylon. And he has begun the process of refining them from copper, tin, and dross into pure gold and to that menorah, anointed by this bowl of anointing oil and Messiah's redemption on their heads. All right. That's what we did Monday and Tuesday. Then I get this newsletter yesterday morning with the exact same material. And so what I'd like to do is just try to share that with you so that you can see what I see. And I just And this is by permission. They don't mind if you reproduce their newsletters, just tell where you got it. Um, and so that's what I did. I just basically copied and pasted uh, from their newsletter. I didn't do the whole thing, but this section of it so that you could see how interesting this is. And so this was taken from the newsletter published on December 29th of 2023, right? And uh, if, you, if you're interested in their programs, just go to ulpanor.org. I believe it's org, if I'm not sure, org. Yeah, I think it's ulpanor.org. You can try it out. If that doesn't work, try a com or a net or something. Right, so here's what they said. This Shabbat, we will read the Torah portion by Yehi, which concludes the book of Genesis. This Torah portion contains the famous blessing bestowed by Jacob on his grandchildren, Ephraim and Menasheh, which has been used over generation as a blessing of father to his sons. May God make you like Ephraim and Menasheh, Genesis 48, 20. 
Jacob's blessing to his grandsons is the only scene of a grandfather giving blessing to his grandchildren in the Torah. And the Torah describes the circumstances under which this blessing was given. Jacob asked Joseph to bring the two grandchildren near so that he can bless them. Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left, and Menasheh, the firstborn, in his left hand toward Israel's right and brought them near to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, although he was younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Menasheh's head, even though Menasheh was the firstborn. Joseph was displeased when he saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Menasheh's head and said to Jacob, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day saying, by you shall Israel bless, saying, God make you as Ephraim and his Menasheh. And he set Ephraim before Menasheh. Why did Jacob favor Ephraim over Menasheh? Jacob knew two things. And it is here that the explanation lies. He knew that the stay of his family in Egypt would not be a short one. Before leaving Canaan to see Yosef, God had appeared to him in a vision. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. Just remember, that's the blessing he gave Ephraim. He will become nations. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. That's just what the rabbis said about Judah's exile, Israel's exile, that the bowl of oil was on their heads, that Adonai went with them in their exile. He says, and I will surely bring you back again. There's the redemption, the gula from the exile. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. This was the start of the long exile, which God had told Jacob's father, Abraham, would be the fate of his children. The other thing Jacob knew was his grandson's names. Menasheh and Ephraim. These have specific meanings in Hebrew, as the Torah describes. Joseph named his firstborn Menasheh, saying, It's because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. So the first one, Menasheh, means to forget. The second son, he named Ephraim, saying, It's because God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So Joseph's in exile, just like we are, and he makes two statements about his exile that we need to think about. Can God make us to forget all our trouble and where we came from? Or even does he make us to forget our father's household? Or have we forgotten and he has restored our memory of who our father's household actually is? The trouble should not make us forget who we are. The second son he named Ephraim saying, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So even though he's in exile, Joseph has risen to greatness. In Canaan, he had been the youngest of 11 brothers in a nomadic family of shepherds. Now in Egypt, he's at the center of the greatest civilization in the ancient world. The past was a bitter memory he sought to remove from his mind. Menasheh, it means forgetting. By the time his second son was born, Yosef un had undergone a profound change of heart. He had all the trappings of earthly success. God has made me fruitful. And he called his second son Ephraim, which means fruit, doubly fruitful. But Egypt had become the land of my affliction. Why? Because it was exile. It wasn't home. 
The land of Israel was home. And Jacob knew that these were the first two children of his family to be born in exile, knowing too that the exile would be prolonged and at times difficult and dark. Jacob sought to convey a message to all future generations that there would be a constant tension between the desire to forget, to assimilate, and the promptings of memory that our real home is somewhere else. Jacob blessed the child of forgetting, Menashe. However, the blessings of a child of Ephraim who remembers the past and future of which he is a part should be greater. And now it says a little bit of Hebrew. It's interesting to note that the Hebrew word for exile is Gola, and the Hebrew word for redemption is geula. The difference in the spelling of these words is the addition of the letter Aleph to the word Gola. The letter Aleph represents the creator, which is Aluf. If one inserts an Aleph into the word Gola, it becomes geula, redemption. Exile is actually empowered and transformed into a great redemption. And the name of Ephraim? starts with the letter Aleph, possibly alluding to that transformation. So I'll let you be the judge on whether that was just a dink or if it's something we need to pay attention to this week, because we can become fruitful in our places of exile. We can begin shedding our sins and the uncleanness of Babylon, even in our exile. King Yeshua is going to gather us back to the temple clean without blemish to forget all the sins and afflictions by which we were purified with salvation, Yeshua's clean garments of righteousness. And I think this is the footsteps of Messiah, guys. I think this is it. I think he's encouraging us because if you think about it, if you look at the two names, Ephraim and Menashe, each of us, each of them tells us something about the end of the exile forgetting those things that are behind you because you've learned to become fruitful even in the exile. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.